C. Edward Watson joins me to talk about teaching naked techniques today on episode 137 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to increase our personal productivity so we can have even more peace in our lives and be more present for our students. If you listen to the show last week, number 136, you know that I got to have a conversation with Jose Bowen about his new book, Teaching Naked Techniques. You also may remember he has a co-author, and that is today's guest, C. Edward Watson, to continue that conversation. Eddie is the director of the Center for Teaching and Learning and a fellow in the Institute for Higher Education at the University of Georgia. He leads university efforts associated with faculty development, teaching assistant development, student learning outcomes assessment, learning technologies, media, and production services. He also supports classroom support and learning spaces and the scholarship of teaching and learning. Eddie teaches courses on college teaching in addition to all those other things. He's the founding editor of the International Journal of ePortfolio and the executive editor of the International Journal of Teaching and Learning in Higher Education. He's published on teaching and learning in a number of journals, including Educational Technology, Educause Review, the Journal for Effective Teaching, and To Improve the Academy, among others. Eddie, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm very glad to be here. Thank you, Bonnie. As you already know, I just read your bio, and you have a lot you could talk to us about today. I can tell already that you're going to be a person I have to control myself not to talk to you for the next three hours, (laughs) because I think we'd eat up all our recording time if we try to do that. I think I'd love to just start and have you give me a little bit of background about how you and Jose got connected and decided that Teaching Naked needed the next book in 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 the journey of Teaching Naked. Sure. Well, I guess it's kind of an interesting journey how we sort of first met or became aware of one another. I guess I first heard Jose speak at one of the AACNU conferences, probably the annual meeting, I'm guessing 2013 at this point. And as I'm the director of the Center for Teaching and Learning here at the University of Georgia, I'm always looking for speakers to bring to campus. And I thought he was just great. And so I engaged him to come to campus. And Athens, Georgia is about 90 minutes from the airport. So I went and picked him up. And so we just had a great conversation in the car on the way from Atlanta to Athens. And then I took him back the next day and we continued that conversation. And then we were together while he was here and we just kind of hit it off and saw a lot of teaching and learning challenges through the same kind of lens. And then I think we ran into each other at two follow-up conferences. And then there was another AACNU meeting and he was waiting for me after I finished my session. 
And he said, hey, can we chat? And so he pitched the idea. I guess his publisher, Wiley, had been eager to have him do a follow-up. And so he said, hey, you know, we, we see things through sort of the same kind of glasses. What do you think? And so that's how it got started. And we ended up, I think I had him out to the house and he uh, spent the night and we just had these long conversations and kind of gave a general map of what this should look like. And from that point, we were off and running. Isn't that so great when you meet someone and you have so much in common in terms of your teaching philosophy and then you get to collaborate on something? Because sometimes I feel like we don't get to do that as much as at least as much as I might like to in higher ed. That's so wonderful that you were able to connect in that way. Yeah, I think the personality piece as well, where we just sort of had a similar sort of work ethic and the ways that we were comfortable functioning. It's been just the most easy collaboration I've ever had. It's just been great. Well, that's fabulous. And he actually, when I talked to him about what we were going to chat about on the last episode, he had some suggestions of things I should hold off and not ask him about after having read the book, but really to ask you to share about. And I wanted to start with this idea. We we talk a lot in higher ed about learning outcomes. They There's sort of this tension between those of us, and I would put myself probably in this category that I always want to define and have it be measurable. I grew up in corporate training, so it was always so important to do that because businesses wanted to know I got my ROI and how how can you show me that? And then those who say that, well, no, learning outcomes, they're, they're oftentimes false because what does that say about what emerges in the course of a course? And, and it doesn't leave enough room for the messiness of learning. Anyway, I'd love to hear you share a little bit just about learning outcomes, but also about this phrase that was new for me of ambitious course goals, because I think they that is your attempt to sort of manage some of that tension I just shared about. Yeah, I think you said it probably more elegantly than than we did, but that was something that we were trying to embrace both ends of things. And I'm, I think I'm more like you. I'm a, more of a, a quantitative person, and I, I definitely believe in notions of programmatic assessment and learning outcomes. That's within my center as well, so it's kind of within my bailiwick. But there's also this notion of sort of the messiness of learning and wanting to have rigorous high standards. And sometimes as you move toward articulating specific measurable learning outcomes, you find that you're you're sort of paring down and you're 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 kind of narrowing in and you're creating a frame around things and then you end up with these nice discrete measurable frames but then there's all of this other space that maybe you're no longer focusing on so we were trying to think of a way to kind of embrace the entirety of what we might have in mind for um a course and so we thought about the notion of how do we embrace rigor and have these ambitious goals, but then don't lose track of that space that's in between the discrete learning outcomes. So we, we ad- advise in the book to articulate the broad conceptual goals for a course and then to start thinking not necessarily about discrete learning outcomes yet, but move to the component parts that would comprise maybe the larger course goal. So this course is about X, and we want students to be able to have these kinds of competencies or skills or abilities when they leave the course, certainly. But, okay, if this is the larger conceptual goal, what are the ambitious goals that are within that larger goal? And then as you start to articulate a little bit smaller ambitious goals, then start to then look within that discrete 
individual goal and look for discrete learning outcomes that might comprise that goal. So in other words, have almost an extra step. So we use a honeycomb analogy to, to describe this space of trying to capture the rigorous large goals within the component pieces within without losing any of the pieces. So you've got the larger honeycomb or bees nest that might be the, the ambitious goal for the course and then what are some of the little bit smaller goals that are still quite ambitious before you start articulating the uh, discrete learning outcomes. So having this extra step in of embracing the rigor before you get to the act of defining specific learning outcomes. But, but we certainly see uh, the need and value in backward design and indeed getting down to the learning outcomes and then designing instruction based upon those specific outcomes. So we're, we're trying to add some complexity to the process of getting to learning outcomes to make sure that some of that messiness is embraced and isn't lost. And could you share an example either from the book or even I'd be interested in your course on college teaching just of what an ambitious goal might be and then and then how we might narrow that down to one of a, a learning outcome? Yeah, well, I think when, when you think about what might be the, the hope that you would have for any college faculty member, that might be an ambitious goal when you look at, at, at a specific university and you go, well, what, what are our... 2016 award winners for um, teaching excellence. What do what do these folks possess? That would be an example of an ambitious goal. Like what do these folks have? And you know, when you start thinking about the the messiness that that you could possibly lose, it would be very easy to go that go to the point of well, these these students should know how to do backward design. But there's also the messiness that might be around the the, the people having passion around their content. So that's something that's more difficult to um, articulate possibly as a learning outcome. But if you have that as a larger goal for to have students uh, have the students who are going to be future teachers, so sort of pre-service teachers, if you will, pre-service college teachers, if they are able to embrace their passion about their content and make that transparent to their students as something that they couple with sort of the more discrete uh, design aspects that you typically see in a college teaching course. That's, that, that's a, an example of something where you don't want to lose it, but how do you hold on to it and still pull it down into the, the level of learning outcome without it evaporating somewhere in between? I know one of the ways that you and Jose have really wanted to take our teaching to the next level is through what you call massively better classrooms and the classroom surprise. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so the the, the notion, and this, this is really, I think, what excited me about um, Jose's first book was the notion that the most valuable thing about traditional higher education is what takes place in the classroom, having access to the faculty member. So how do we maximize what the faculty member could do within the classroom? And so his initial premise was that you, you, you sort of flip the, the order of things where rather than content being delivered within the classroom and then students take on the challenging problems for homework that night, you kind of invert the process where they get students get access to just sort of content delivery or first first contact with content before class. And then when they come to class, that's when you can maximize 
what a faculty member can bring to a classroom setting. So the challenging problems are actually done within class. Students work through challenging problems, and then when they get stuck, they can have access to a faculty member or a TA or what other structures might be in the classroom to have students have greater success than getting stuck when they're at home doing homework and they really have no one that can help them immediately whenever they're, they've reached that, that point of challenge. So an, an example of this then is what we're, we're, we've began to call the classroom surprise where we have opportunities to complicate problems on the fly in a classroom. So if you have students who are working through a problem and you've got several different parameters that are set up and as they have success with that, then you can then switch the mechanics of the problem that they might be working on to complicated and new, interesting ways that maybe they wouldn't have had opportunities to have experienced without that sort of in-media race faculty voice to to think and rethink what might be taking place in the classroom at a given moment. When we think about, and I'm going to use the phrase flipped classroom because that was what you were describing in the first case was just this flipping of, I get the content online and, and then I show up for more of the problem solving in the classroom. One of the challenges that a lot of faculty talk about, and, and maybe it actually relates back to what we were sharing about learning outcomes, there's this tension between wanting to measure every little thing that happens online and and then you know how, just how, to what degree do I want to track this I'll, I'll I'll give you an example from my own teaching I'm I still would consider myself fairly new to teaching in a doctoral program I've been teaching 12 years undergrad but just a couple two three years in a doctoral program and it's been interesting to me that the particular people I work with often want much more prescriptive and trackable things that I'm going to assign to them to do than I would have anticipated a doctoral program would would entail. And 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 one example of that recently was that I decided to rather than have them do a discussion forum, I decided I wanted to invite them to tweet about their insights they were having on the textbook. And, you know, right away, it's fairly new in the course that I'm teaching right away. Many of them felt very comfortable doing that and then linking to other resources. And I thought, ah, yes, this is it. This is why we teach, you know, (laughs) victory is mine. (laughs) And then then I started getting the, how many tweets did you want us to do every week? And based on how many per chapter? And I had forced myself to not really quantify that because it is more in my nature to do that because there will be those students, undergrad or all the way to the doctoral level who you won't get the engagement from if there's not the bar. But then as soon as you put a bar there, then I think it lowers some people's maybe type of engagement they would have. So this is way longer of a question than I would normally ask. (laughs) But I was curious what thoughts that you have around just that idea of when we do decide to get them online, you know, how much do we track and what methods do we use to track? And then when do we just say, hey, this is just an, an invitation. It's not a requirement. Well, I think I think one thing that you kind of I think tease out in that example that you just shared is just sort of the the, the aspect of human nature that our students certainly possess, but certainly we all possess. Like as an example, whenever I was selling my house in Blacksburg, Virginia, before moving down to Athens almost five years ago now, whenever I was selling the house, I, we went back up and I 
was looking at the yard, and it was like late in the year, and I was like, you know, I don't really have to mow the whole yard. I could just mow here and there, and I'll just leave these other places under the trees. I don't even have to mow, and I'll save myself some time, and I can go on and do other things. And I think we all do that, whether you're 10 years old or 30 years old or, you know, 90. We're all trying to figure out how can we kind of save time and cut corners and what might be an appropriate expectation here. And and I was talking with a, a group of undergraduates probably about a year ago, and they described their classes as, as really they were talking about it, classes being largely an issue of project management, but that they described all of their professors as they see them as puzzles and that they come to a class at the beginning of the semester and what they're largely engaged in for the first class or two or three is how, how do I do this puzzle? What are the expectations? Oh, this is a high engagement class. Okay, I realize I need to come to class ready to talk. Oh, this is a lecture class. I can just kind of sit back and just this is a note-taking class. You know, basically, they, they learn what the norms and expectations are, and then they conform to those norms. And that's, that's basically the model of education that they've had multiple times over in lots of different course settings. So I think that we're all, those of us that teach, would prefer intrinsic motivation to be what drives a class and that we never have to articulate we need X number of texts or you have to respond to three um, posts. Yeah. I think it's absolutely expected in human nature that students would have that expectation of like, well, just how much do I have to do? What equates to, you know, passing or excellence within this class? And then they can make decisions about how to, how to manage that. So I, I think it's, I guess I'm, I'm like you, I'm somewhat inherently frustrated by that desire for students to, to want that quantification. How many of these do I have to do? But yet it's, it's 100% expected. And I'm, I'm, I haven't solved the, the the puzzle myself of Mm -hmm. how do we break students free of wanting to articulate or question how many of these do I have to do in favor of, wow, I'm just so heavily engaged. I'm so deep in the flow of of the course experience that I'm not thinking about what the expectations are. I'm just fully engaged. I guess that's, that's where we want to take our students, but invariably, invariably we're all just, our courses are puzzles. Yeah, I really like what you're saying there. And I appreciate your patience with my long winded question. You, well, you, you parsed out a lot there. I, I was thinking one of the things I do is change my approach in the undergrad, depending on what level course it is. So for the 100 level classes, I actually do track a lot. An example with that would be that I have every week, I do things called pen casts. And that's where I'm drawing on my iPad, but I'm also can record my voice. So the notes that they're able to take are far more visual than if I just encourage them to take notes on their own. It sort of helps them become more visual note takers. And then those, yeah, they provide just great reinforcements for their own learning. But in, in the 100 level classes that I teach, I do actually have them in this case, our, our learning management system has a little button that they can push when they're submitting an assignment that just brings up their webcam. So I literally have them (laughs) record a video of themselves holding these notes that they just took. And then my TA says they do all sorts of ridiculous things to because they start to learn her personality <laughs> over the time. And sometimes right. they'll make, hi, Jamie, how are you? You know, making jokes and stuff. But that's just the lowest maintenance way on their end to turn in what they just did. And then the lowest maintenance end on my end to actually track it. 
But some would say, well, why would you track that? Because you're still having to spend your TA's time and then it's up to them. And I think, no, it's not because we increasingly have more and more at-risk students and I want to do everything I can to help them build those good habits. And yeah, by the time they're juniors or seniors, as you say, they should have learned better how to navigate and learn those norms and expectations. They get the syllabus, you know, they've got it figured out by then. But I feel like when they're freshmen, we need to do a better job of helping instill those habits. Yeah, I think some of the habits that you were just describing it's not like they were pointless habits either or just a means of being counting or quantifying. I mean, they Mm -hmm. were activities that required cognitive processing on the side of your students. There was an outcome or an out, a product at the end, an artifact of learning that was then shared. And then, you know, it was able to be sort of checked off that yes, they engaged in this, but the activity itself was meaningful. Yeah. Yeah. And that's probably why I have such an aversion to the reply to three other people if there's not some reason behind it and they won't have some benefit from doing it. Right. One of the other things that has been coming up, not just in the podcast, but I wrote a blog recently about what I call the great debate. And that is having to do with whether or not we should ban laptops or student devices in the classrooms or allow them, or even some faculty will have a section of the class that they will cordon off and say, you know, this is where you sit if you have laptops, et cetera. And this is, of course, as you well know, Eddie, (laughs) the flurry of the debate that goes on. And Jose mentioned that you actually have some research to share around this and then your own recommendations from the the book. And of course, we know know Jose had some recommendations in the original Teaching Naked. Yeah, this has definitely been an area of interest for a lot of people around the country these days, and it's it's certainly been an area that I've been researching as well. And I guess I'll just sort of take you on through the arc of thought that has brought me to some of the recommendations that I currently have, along with a little bit of a couple of studies that we've done. So I guess ultimately we've we've gotten to a point where I could go back quite a bit here and sort of talk about sort of the narrative around 2000 that brought us to this uh, encouragement for students to multitask or have devices out in the classroom. I think there's, there's certainly, I guess, some some wish fulfillment that we might have around the notion of students having their laptops and their device out in class, that, that we might be so engaging in the classroom that the students, then their their own intellectual curiosity goes, ah, the professor, she just said this. Oh, I really want to research this. I want to follow my, you know, but often students aren't actually doing that. More, more often than not, they're actually engaging in other types of off-task behavior. So ultimately, we, we, we're pretty confident in saying that students or humans in general can't multitask, that we can't do two things that require cognitive load. If there are certain behaviors that we have practiced so much that they become automated, we certainly could, like Bonnie, you and I could go for a walk across campus and we could have a a deeply intellectual conversation while we're walking Mm -hmm. at the same time, the act of walking and having a deeply intellectual conversation. We could, we could master that because one task is so automated, but if there's a student who's walking toward us who might have her head down and maybe she's texting on her cell phone and she's walking right for us, probably as she got closer, our conversation would stop because we would then have to take evasive action. We would have to, a new task is now taking over our, um, our cognition. 
you know, the, the task of avoiding the student. And then once that task was completed, we could get back to the conversation as we walk. But for the most part, two tasks that require cognitive load at the same time, we're not going to be able to do. Um, so, so with that assumption now that, that the act of responding to a text requires cognitive load and that would basically pull you away from engaging with the class, we see then that you know, multitasking is not something we can do. And it was the, the often cited study from, I guess, 2013, lead author was Santa, um, regarding distraction in class that students sitting in the line of sight of multitaskers' laptops did more poorly on end-of-class exams than even the multitaskers themselves, that the act of distraction was such uh, a heavy determinant of, of sort of a new additional multitasking behavior, which is actually a quite healthy behavior when you think about it, the fact that we are easily distracted. I think we've all been at the stoplight, and then as a car pulls up next to us, we look over at it, and that person's already looking at us, and somehow we could see that they were looking at us. You know, we, it's great that we have strong peripheral vision and that we are easily distracted through visuals. I mean, when you think about our ancestors, we're here today because our ancestors were able to see that thing on the horizon that might be able to come and get them. So, so we are very distractible, and certainly visuals on a computer screen, especially if the visuals themselves are appealing or interesting um, for whatever reason. I can remember the first time I did a, a teaching observation at the University of Georgia. I was in this class, and the young lady sitting in front of me spent the entirety of class shopping for one red dress. Mm. Just click, 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 you know, just through one screen to the next to the next, often a white screen with someone wearing red dresses, just one to the next to the next which is unfair. She actually shopped for boots during that experience <laughs> too. But it was so distracting that at the end, like I was looking at my notes and my experience in the classroom, like, wow, I was really kind of pulled, pulled away just sort of over and over again without, without having um, really kind of control. So we've, we see that we've got, we can't really multitask and distraction in class is really significant. And there's, there was an argument that was made, well, yeah, while, we can't, while students can't multitask, they're really good at rapid switching. And then there was a study, I guess in 2015, that was funded by AAA. And they were able, well, of course, this is within a driving setting, but they noted or discovered that there's sort of a lingering distraction that occurs after you do a a task. So like if you're at a stoplight and you pull out your phone and you send a couple of texts and then the light turns green and you begin to drive, there's actually sort of this latency of distraction. You're still, you're not fully focused even though now you're driving and your phone's been put away. And in fact, they, they argued from their data that that uh, lingering distraction lasted for up to 20 seconds. Mm -hmm. So there's not really a rapid switching then. There's a, yeah, it might, you could, it may take five seconds to send a text, but you put your phone down and you get back to taking notes and then it takes you a while to kind of focus back in and to kind of gain, gain a reorientation to the, the content within the course. So it seems like there, were, there are three things here that, ha that have significant data that, that led me to some additional research questions. So we can't multitask and even those that aren't multitasking in class could be easily distracted and then if you are distracted or if you do engage in a different cognitive task like texting or 
checking your email and then coming back. There's this this lingering distraction thing. So it seems like there could be significant distraction in a class setting. And so I was trying to figure out, okay, so if that's the case, how significant is that? And then what might we do to uh, approach how we might be able to to handle that? And there's a number of, of strategies, and you mentioned several. Many of that are good. But So what we did was we did a, a predominantly an observational study where we sent in a, a team of graduate students, probably about four or five. I guess you can call that a team. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> about four or five into a, a class here at UGA. It was a large enrollment class. The faculty member had won one of what had won her college's top teaching awards. So she was a good, good in the classroom, but she was predominantly a lecturer. I mean, that's that's what she did. She comes in. She's got PowerPoint up. She's got she's got you know funny stories and cartoons to go along with her content. But she's she is a lecturer. So what we did is we sent in students and and they had these scoring sheets and they would sit down and then they would kind of look and see how many students screens that they could see. Um, this could be laptops or cell phones. And then they would kind of note, okay, these are my eight students that I can see. And then every two minutes, they would note what the student was doing. Hmm. And so there was some judgments that were made. So like, is this student, okay, they're on a computer. Are they taking notes on the computer or related to the class? Or are they doing other things? And, you know, the other things are easy to see, like, you know, whether you're on Snapchat on your phone or you're on a YouTube page or ESPN page. I mean, there's lots of it's, it's, it was pretty easy to kind of chart. And so on four different days, we went into her morning class and her afternoon class. So it was the same, the same class, just different sections. And we just observed to see what, what would happen. And across, I think there were about 283 students across those eight classes, so those four days, morning and afternoon um, sections. And we had 6,698 observations. So lots of data to kind of compare across these um, sections. What we found was there were no significant multitasking differences between the 9 a.m. class and the 2.30 class. I mean, it was pretty much morning and afternoon. It didn't make any difference. We did find huge differences from a sex perspective. Female students were engaged in multitasking more than male students. And not surprisingly, there was a lot more multitasking that was taking place in the back of the room than the front of the room. (laughs) Um, So what we found was it was sort of like lights coming on and off in a classroom, it's, you know, rarely did you have a student who would just kind of come in and take off their backpack and kind of hammer through an entire class of surfing the web. Mm-hmm. What we found was there were, we were, we found that 6% of students were off task 100% of the time. Like they would come in and they would just do that. We had 13% that were on task 100% of the time, but it was about 37% of the students at any given instant whether it was the beginning of the class, the middle of the class, or end of the class, about a third of the students would be multitasking, would be doing something else. And we found the back of the class, it was almost 50% were multitasking at any given moment that you might look. And in the front of the class, it was about 28%. What was also interesting from our observations is that students were far more likely to be asleep in the front of the class than in the back of the class. Interesting. I guess that's 
yeah, I thought that was interesting too. I guess the folks in the back of the class had something else to do. They could um, <laughs> multitask. I kind of theorized that the reason for that is that their students who sat in the front were really trying hard to be focused and engaged. So they weren't engaging in other multitasking behaviors, but they just they just weren't able to stay engaged. So across the classes, you know, we did this four different days, and the fr- the first class and the second class were all just pretty much the same. I mean, the, the the no differences in the amount of multitasking between the morning and the afternoon, or the first date and the second date. But the professor gave me thirty minutes in a in a class following the second observation date and allowed me to do a presentation and and it was a rocking presentation i had them do a multitasking activity mm. and showed showed that they couldn't do two cognitive tasks at the same time one was a written task and one was a mathematical task i had some football videos to show and kind of explain a few concepts around multitasking and how this is really a negative impact on their own learning as well as those around them it, I thought it was a great presentation, so we, I, I did that on a Monday, and then we came back on that Wednesday. Do you think my presentation had an impact on the student? So 48 hours later, we come back, we observe. Do you think their multitasking behaviors had decreased? Oh, I'm going to um, go over- decreased. Yeah. They, yeah, there was. There was a significant decrease, a very significant decrease. However, we came back two and a half weeks later and observed them again, uh, and during that fourth day, their behaviors had went exactly back to how they were the first observation that we did. In other words, the educational intervention had an impact, but it, it didn't last. It, there mm-hmm. was a decay mm. to its effectiveness, yeah. which, su- which suggests that probably you know, these educational programs that we might do for first-year students most likely aren't going to have the lasting impact that we would hope that they would have. So that's really problematic if it's not an educational problem. But whenever we were kind of developing the instrument that we used for these eight classes of observations, we were in a different, a different professor's class altogether. She let us kind of come in, and she was someone who did quite a bit of active learning in her large um, enrollment class. And whenever she had the students doing various activities or discussions or worksheets, that's when multitasking would absolutely stop or cease. The students had something to do. There were things that they were expected to do in class, whether it was conversation or whether it was working problems. So I think ultimately what we're seeing is that probably faculty behaviors are what's more important to managing student multitasking than maybe trying to educate students. I mean, there's certainly a range of strategies that could be like you write it into the syllabus and you kind of become the technology Gestapo for the entire semester, but that really has an impact on the the, the, the class climate if that's kind of the dynamic that's set up where you're always kind of looking for student technology. So that's 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 a bit problematic, though those kinds of policies can be effective. But I've been I've been thinking. And, and, and truly without hyperbole thinking that maybe the, the greatest challenge we have to teaching and learning in higher education may indeed be student technology usage. So I don't, I don't think there's a way for us to not, not really engage with this notion of handling our students using technology. I think that each faculty member has to make a decision for his or herself. However, 
when you're making that decision, there, there are several things that could, be, that could guide you. And one is the notion of using more active learning strategies in your class mm-hmm. in that we're seeing that if you have students do things in class as alternatives to note-taking, then you know, that, that'll often keep them on task and, and off of the technology. And so I guess this kind of almost brings us full circle around, about this notion of the classroom surprise and designing massively better classrooms where how do we maximize what faculty can provide for students in the classroom. So that's kind of a long story. I <laughs> well, it was a delightfully engaging story and you do owe me one. So no, <laughs> I really appreciate that. I'm completely riveted. I, I had received an email from a colleague asking these kinds of questions. She runs uh, one of our grad programs. And so she had been asking, they were, they were considering banning technology in all of their classes and because they, they do a cohort model. And I mentioned to you, I had written a blog post and then it was kind of interesting what blogs can accomplish that are not yet to the research findings. Like you've gone to such a greater extent to quantify things. And, but it was just nice to be able to share. And then it kind of took off a little bit on Twitter because someone asked questions about uh, my course evaluations. I try to do these things, but then it doesn't work. And so I got to clarify a couple of things. And one you brought up, and that is that we don't just put it in our syllabus and then think that it's done or announce it, or as you said, give a 30 minute fantastic presentation and then think that it's going to stick, but it is really setting new norms. And you don't set norms through one incident or through a paragraph in your syllabus. It's a culture that you're trying to build. And anyone that studied leadership and culture knows it takes time to form a culture and it's sustained. And the other thing that I'm hearing you say, and I have found in my experience too, is that when we're so focused as professors on the punitive, I want to control these people. They're so disrespectful. How dare they do the same thing that I do anytime I have to wait in a line or, or what have you, that we can shift our focus instead to make the experience of learning inviting and engaging and, and we're planning to surprise them and by not in an entertaining way, although there's nothing wrong with that, but also through helping them problem solve and then the problem gets deeper and more complex and they get so much more interested in what's happening as you've described. It's so fun when when you're teaching and you see that come to life in your classroom. Yeah, I think, you know, I think part of the problem with the educational intervention that I just described was that it took place in like mid-late October. So there, there's um, students have figured out the puzzle of that class, mm-hmm. and there had been a rhythm for two semest- for two months that led to me coming in and doing this presentation. But you know, it, it could be that a, a, a statement within a syllabus then that's followed up with a sense of, well, here's what the research is saying. Here are these couple of studies. So the reason we have this in the in the syllabus is because we really care about your learning. Yes, and we, we yes. know that you're going to do significantly poorer in the in-class parts if you engage in these behaviors. So this is why we're saying this, this can't be done. But with that said, this is going to be the best class you've ever been in. Here are some things we've really mm-hmm. got planned for you. So your engagement, your attendance is really important. So kind of maybe balance the you know, the carrot stick kind of approach. But then once the semester gets rolling, I don't, I don't know. It's hard for me to envision, and maybe it's just my own sort of teaching persona, but playing that role of, um, of, of having to, to step in and, you know, correct a student's behavior just because of the dynamic. What does that set within the 
within the class. If I'm trying to foster discussion, but at the same time I'm trying to foster discussion, I'm actually also smacking down students. I can remember one time I was teaching in a computer lab and I had a student who was watching a basketball game and I had them doing something and he had this basketball game on and I walked on around and then I, I was really sort of like, Chelsea, what, what's, what do I do here? You know? And I went back to him and I said, Hey, uh, unless you've got a thousand dollars on this game, maybe you should just focus back on the activity that, that I have in front of you, you know, and he kind of smiled and, you know, it's like, and I'm, I'm still not satisfied that that was the best way to handle it. I mean, I made a little bit of a joke out of it. I tried to correct it. I made it very quiet. Mm-hmm. Luckily, students were all working on something, so I didn't have to stop my lecture or, or stop what I was doing to then make a very public correction of the student. And, you know, often a very public correction will indeed correct that behavior, but there's a lot of downstream oh, yeah. ramifications. So, <laughs> oh, wait, you're describing my first couple of years of teaching. <laughs> I'm having flashbacks. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Never never worth it in my experience. Not not worth no. it. I, I, I would just rather for that one class session not say anything, even though I typically do, but I'd rather not say anything than publicly embarrass someone because you do, you just, it's hard to ever get back from that with another person. Yeah, and it really sets a tone where there's this expect. Well, people begin to fear you is what it really comes down to. Mm-hmm. If they, if 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 you call out somebody publicly for X, then it's like, well, then you know, what other behaviors might we get? You know, you know, when when when, when your learning is being mediated through anxiety, yeah. you know, where you're always wondering, could I get, could I get embarrassed ultimately? You know, then it, it changes one's behavior, makes you just want to not say anything, don't be a part of conversation, just sort of quietly come to class, keep your head down, gather your notes and get out of there, which is, which um, to my way of thinking, that's, that's counter to learning, counter to the kind of environment that most of us would want to foster in our classes. Yeah, and it's interesting that you would perceive it that way, because as a woman teaching too, I would more suspect that women or people of color would experience not the fear, but the needless, uh, needlessly people despising you <laughs> and, and try, you, you create right. this power dynamic that is not worth it for what you might gain. You know, it's I, I could try to show I'm the person here in charge, that kind of thing. Um, but what it, the expense that it comes at to me is not that I think the students will be there in fear, but that I'll create this this just tension that doesn't need to be there. Yes, I mean, this really is a, a very thorny, complex problem where we know how damaging it is to learning about the distraction factor. And if you've got a third of your class that are doing things online, probably 100% of your students, I mean, literally all students are being distracted at different points during a class. So given given we've got that that level of problem within our classes, and if you if you adopt the belief that the purpose of our of our being in the classroom is to increase the probability that the students are going to learn your content, then what, what, what actions do you take then to write that ship? Mm-hmm. But then it seems like most of the, most of the options that we have in front of us are, have, have downsides to them as well. I think the only one that probably doesn't have any thorns as a solution is likely the active learning approach where we, where we do this sort of a flipped model where when you come to class, you come to class to do stuff and the do stuff is not taking notes that you might take notes, but the do stuff is you're going to work through problems and we're going to give you immediate feedback to help you 
you know, correct and get back on the right path to solve when you get, when you get stuck. It really seems like the best model from a, from a learning perspective, from multiple perspectives around learning. Yeah, that's wonderful. Well, thank you so much for sharing that great story about your research. And we'll be putting a link in the show notes, which will be at teachinginhighered.com slash 137, where people can read even more about it. And of course, they should buy the book and, and really learn how to put the teaching naked techniques into action. This is the point in the show where we each get to give our recommendations. And I just have a quick one today. And that is I read a pretty good article about how to update your LinkedIn profile for 2017. And that's just something that I think is so important to do, even if you're not looking for a new role, I'm certainly not. I'm very happy where I am. But I do think it's important for us to just be thinking about our LinkedIn profile, if you have one, keeping it updated. And it's a great way to, again, not just if it's in terms of your career, but lots of opportunities for networking up there and you want to make sure it's representative. It's a good article. I'd suggest people check it out if you're on LinkedIn and want to make sure yours is updated. And Eddie, what do you have to recommend for us today? Well, I think what brought me to this recommendation is is really the the range of research regarding regarding brain-based learning, um, neuroscience, all of the new research that's emerged over the last 10 to 15 years that really provide the foundation for for the book that Jose and I have written. There's there's just been this explosion of of new research that leads to very specific types of guidance for what we might do differently in, a, in our college classroom. So a, another book that folks might want to think about if you missed it when it was published a few years ago is a book called Spark, The Revolutionary New Science of Exercise and the Brain. It's written by John Rady. And what I find really exciting about that book is that it it shows that some of the most important variables associated with student learning are actually kind of outside of our um, control in that exercise has these incredible benefits for uh, students' retention of content, for processing of content, for learning content. I mean, it almost suggests that our college campuses should look entirely different where instead of, you know, everywhere that we have Coke machines on campus right now, maybe we should have a couple of treadmills in their place. But mm-hmm. it's a, it's really an engaging read that is very much based in the science that is just sort of emblematic of the kind of research that's taking place these days regarding how people learn. Thank you so much for that recommendation. And I think it's been a couple of years, but a listener had written in privately to me over email and had suggested the author as a guest. So I'll put him down as a potential guest too and see if I could get him on the show. I really appreciate you sharing that as a recommendation and triggering me to think about this great book. Again, that's fabulous. And Eddie, I want to thank you just for investing your time to coming on the show and all the coordination that went into making it. And I'm just going to wish you and Jose the best as you kick off the sales of the book. And I hope people are really able to get their hands on a copy and really start to put these things into practice. So thank you so much for your time and your talents. Well, thank you too, Bonnie. Thanks again to Eddie for coming on Teaching in Higher Ed. I absolutely loved hearing about teaching naked techniques and also about the study that you did on multitasking. I'm looking forward to when that ends up getting published and we'll add it to the show link when it does to the show notes at teachinginhighered.com slash 137. Thanks to all of you for listening to Teaching in Higher Ed. As always, I welcome suggestions for future guests or future topics and you can do that at teachinginhighered.com slash feedback. Keep on listening and I look forward to seeing you next time.